Hello and welcome to the Why Behind the What. My name is Nathan Albert, and as always, I am so glad you are listening to this podcast today. I truly believe that the what can start a conversation, but the why can open up one's soul. And in these past episodes, as I've been speaking with friends about contemplative spirituality, more recently about racism and whiteness, spiritual rhythms, and ways to rekindle faith, I hope you are getting a glimpse of the why behind the what. In this episode of the podcast, I have the privilege of interviewing Dan Harrison. Dan is the pastor of the iconic Church of the Covenant in Lynchburg, Virginia. In this episode, we talk about our role of dismantling white supremacy, The Good Samaritan shows up. We talk about reparations, contemplative prayer, and his journey of moving from a fundamentalist Christian faith to an expansive spiritual life. Dan also introduces us to the racial history of Lynchburg, as well as the role his church has played in creating an integrated city and church. Every time I visit the Church of the Covenant, it's as if I'm I'm not only walking through the history of this city, but I'm also walking on holy ground. In the show notes, I have a bunch of links to his church and a few other resources he mentioned in our conversation, so I encourage you to check those out. Dan is a member of the Choctaw Nation, and we recorded and edited this podcast on Monacan land. With that, here is my interview with Reverend Dan Harrison. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm glad you're here. Tell our listeners a little bit about who you are personally, as well as what do you do professionally? Well, I, I, who I am personally, let's see, um, that would begin a long, long time ago. Um, and um, I was born and raised in Oklahoma. And uh, and I felt a call to ministry, you could say, from a young age, thanks to the, um, I guess, the uh, mentoring of my grandfather who had been a missionary and a pastor. And, uh, and so then I, uh, went to college and college eventually took me outside of the state. I ended up in Texas, which is a whole nother country. We joke about that over there. And, um, and eventually I met my wife and then we started a life together pretty young. I started having kids pretty young. So we did that, did the whole route, um, seminary, did some church planting and pastoring, um, that kind of thing. Did some creative stuff um, all through the 90s and into the 2000s. We were kind of uh, going a certain direction that, that led us eventually to be overseas. And, and we did that for a few years and uh, ended up teaching college. So I taught college. I taught English in college for 11 years. Came back to the States, continue raising a family, growing family. Uh, we have four kids, Ruth and I, and uh, varying in ages. Um, it seems like we have two sets of children. We have one one new child. We would call her new. She's 11 now, but uh, she's a bit younger than our sons. So anyway, um, you know, fortunately, I uh, uh, found my way by corporate, I ended up doing some corporate work for a few years and then found my way back into ministry. And I pastor a church here in Lynchburg, Virginia called Church of the Covenant. Sounds great. I mean, some of that I knew, but thank you for sharing that. Tell us a little bit about the history of your church here in Lynchburg, because um, it's 
one thing I really appreciate you is you know your history. And so you're pretty new into this church role, but you really know the history of the church and that has informed how you lead it. So share a little bit about the church, what you do, and uh, kind of the history of it. And then I'm going to I'm going to bring it back to you personally. So get ready. <laughs> no, it sounds good. Sounds fair. Um, yeah, you're right. I am new. I'm just coming into my, the end of my third year at uh, Church of the Covenant. And it's my, in fact, my first uh, start at the church officially was right at the Charlottesville uh, protest weekend, um, Unite the Right it was standing with other clergy in Charlottesville, which is just an hour away. And, and that was my first kind of official role. You know, I donned the, uh, the, uh, um, the robes or, and, 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 and the, uh, stole and, and went out and stood with, uh, with clergy in the middle of emancipation square. And, um, as they interlocked arms and, um, held on to each other and prayed and, uh, sang, uh, old spiritual songs, um, you know, it was me and one other gentleman, um, and we would, uh, you know, constantly go back and up and down the line, giving water and uh, and aid and uh, food and things to these courageous uh, uh, civil rights, you know, leaders and, and fighters and uh, fighting out of love and 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 all the while, you know, these alt right groups were screaming at them, yelling at them, and eventually bowling them over um, all in Emancipation Square. So that was my first kind of official function as the new pastor of Church of the Covenant. So it started that weekend, and uh, and here we are, we're coming up on, on, on the third year anniversary of that. Yeah, so, um, and why does that, is that important for the history of the church? I think that's what you're kind of, you're, you're asking about is, is really, it's, it's history is, its very inception as a church um, was to do a very unique thing in the South. Um, the year was 1954 when the uh, founder, um, uh, Bev Cosby, along with a fellow seminarian friend of his, decided to start the church here in Lynchburg, Virginia, as an integrated church. And it was the first. It was the first intentionally integrated, that meaning not racially segregated, um, Christian church in, uh, in Lynchburg. And he, he had been raised Presbyterian. Um, and his older, his older brother, Gordon Cosby was a, was a pretty popular Baptist pastor at that time. And, um, he couldn't get the Presbyterians or the Southern Baptists, uh, to sponsor this work. And he found himself really, um, not knowing what to do. He was just wrapping up seminary and uh, in New York at Union, and he, he just didn't know where to go, who to go to, and he went to several other denominations, and they all turned him down because of the racial uh, aspect of their church was just too, it was too uh, just unbelievable that they would be wanting to have an integrated, not just a, a clearly white church. And so eventually, um, it was the Christian Congregational Denomination, or what is now the United Church of Christ, UCC, in New York, that that, that gave Bev, who is a man, by the way, um, gave Bev a uh, Beverly, but Bev is what they called him, uh, his a foot in the door um, to use uh, the UCC as his, his launching had for uh, the Church of the Covenant here in Lynchburg in 1954, and and what a work it was. I mean, right from the beginning, to to, to not be racially divided, to be racially uniting, and 
ecumenical. That was a kind of a new word at the time, I think, for many. But the idea was that they weren't even going to be denominational. They wanted to be uh, accepting of all denominations and um, and different faiths. And uh, eventually, that would grow to be different faiths. But but initially, it was just the other Christian uh, sects or denominations you know they wanted this unity thing to happen and and so bev worked really hard on that and uh him and his partners you know the the first few that were part of this church the church is modeled after his brother's church um uh, gordon cosby who started church of the savior in uh, dc and uh the church model is pretty simple it was uh it was an outgrowth from both of their experiences in uh, world war ii it was with this kind of militant urgency that they didn't see in modern church at the time. They, they saw just kind of this lackadaisical, uh, very uh, tempid, um, non, a, a, a dispassioned uh, Christian church. And uh, what they, what they, it, that, that centered on luxury, opulence, status, and um, membership, and and it centered around a, a, a pastoral clergy elite and. Uh, Gordon Cosby was dead set against this when coming back uh, from well, his experiences in World War II, and, and Bev followed in his older brother's footsteps that this would not they would not do traditional church, and instead they started a church where very egalitarian, um, everyone's on equal footing, um, kind of this whole idea that we're all ordained, also that the church would be small, it would not be large, it's not trying to grow bigger, um, what it's trying to do is grow outward in mission and mission together, and that they would be bound together under what they called a covenant. And then that's what, uh, that's why Church of the Covenant is called Church of the Covenant. But it's uh, it's a covenant, you would think in some circles, covenant automatically means your relationship with God. But really what what they're saying is your relationship to one another. And so your covenant is, is about how you decide uh, you're going to practice your faith and, um, and, and you decide to do that together. And it's renewal. It's renewable. Sorry, every year they get to renew their membership into the covenant, and so that's why it's called Church of the Covenant. It's a really interesting place um, that wouldn't really make its mark until a few years later. So it started in 1954, but it wasn't until 60 that uh, things started to really become very public in Lynchburg when it came to race relations and. Uh, uh, a member or two were involved in what was the Patterson Six uh, sit-in at Patterson's Diner or drug, I think this is a drugstore with a uh, with a lunch counter um, in 1960, downtown Lynchburg. Anyway, they were arrested because they had in their company um, people of color and it was an all-whites establishment. Anyway, they end up going to jail and... Uh, Bev works really hard to rally around them and uh, the church as well and other churches, but um, they decide to start a cafe or a coffee house then called Lodge of the Fishermen. And it would be the first uh, publicly integrated um, eatery uh, outside of the hospital uh, in Lynchburg where blacks and whites could eat together. And so that was started here on the campus. Um, and uh, that was January of 61, which was, uh, yeah, it had, it had its fair share of controversies with it. And then, of course, uh, later that year in 61 was when Lynchburg was kind of at the height again of just a, a very tense uh, racial um, navigation, trying to figure out how to live together. Um, and uh, in order to not have to desegregate their swimming pools, 
uh, Lynchburg made a decision to uh, to close all of their uh, public swimming pools. And so a very hot summer, Bev opened up the camp pools. We had a camp, a children's camp, um, and uh, opened the camp pools to everybody. So you had your first black and white kind of integrated experience swimming together here again at the uh, Church of the Covenant um, in 1961. And then that really kind of led to uh, Martin Luther King coming to Lynchburg in 62 to support desegregation of the city. Um, I spent some time here with, uh, at the Lodge of the Fishermen and, uh, um, you know, meeting with uh, leaders uh, in the movement. And, uh, and here you had a largely white, even though it was an integrated work, uh, largely majority culture white uh, folks in this particular neighborhood um, participating in the church. But, um, but yeah, that, that's, that's kind of its beginning, you know, of, uh, of, of, of its experience as a Christian community in Lynchburg. And you being there now a handful of years, know this history, learn this history. And now you, now we're in a season of pandemic and protests and continued, um, racial, uh, injustice in our country. So how are you as a minister and as someone who is a part of this church and that history, how are you reacting, processing all that is going on in our country right now? Yeah, I think, I think for us, I think your question was directed at me too. Um, what am I doing and, uh, how am I dealing with, um, some of these things and then, and then our church and its legacy. I think those are good, good questions to ask. I, I, um, I have been, um, I think just torn up like most people, um, grieving and wanting to see immediate change in so many ways. Like many, I think in the majority culture, we end up, um, we end up, uh, doing the, doing these little things that we just kind of hope and pray just somehow, burst into much larger, um, drastic changes and, and letter writing has been one of them. Right. So I've written like to our newspaper editor or, or joined in on, on some other writings with other people. And, you know, I'm trying to call out the injustice and, 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 and really just try to stand in solidarity with those who are hurting, uh, been oppressed under the system, call it out for what it is and, and really, really vocalize a need for change. Um, participating out in the streets, um, you know, has been, been some of that. Um, uh, but I'll have to admit that, uh, I've been caught, kind of called out on that too. Um, by, uh, a friend, uh, a person of color who's who point blanks call, he, she called me and said, you know, it's nice to see all these white folks out here joining in the streets and in the rallies and the protests, but you know, what, what, what's going to happen next? Are they willing to invest economically into the uh, into a shift in uh, social wealth, uh, economic wealth in this country, are they willing to sacrifice what they have as as people who have benefited from a white supremacist system? Um, are they willing to sacrifice and put their money kind of where their mouth is at the moment, and uh, and help uh, bring equitability? Uh, in, a, in a real tangible way, like economically, education-wise, to communities of color. Uh, her question was right. I asked the right question. I, I and, and and that's and that's the question I ask for our community. You know, as a church, um, 
you know, are we standing? I mean, sure, it's easy to kind of when you're already part of the the liberal milieu or the progressive side of things to kind of say the right things and set the right tone and, uh, you know, um, repent of white supremacy and and then and then say that you're working for for real racial justice. But if you're not willing to give up your status, give up what you have, what you've acquired, what you've benefited from because of the color of your skin, um, then, then, then are you really, really for true change? And I think that we're at that crossroads now, you know, as a community, I think we've got to make decisions when it comes to how to live into our love for neighbor kind of like Jesus did. You know, I think about Jesus with the Samaritans and I think how, how Jesus, um, I think he relished, um, those moments where, um, you know, um, the Jewish people would, would be upset at a Samaritan, you know, people of a different race, people of a different religion, you know, he kind of used them, you know, as a, uh, as, as some, as a group to emulate, he would, he would, uh, you know, uh, call out uh, to his uh, Jewish uh, folks that, uh, you know, we should be more like the Samaritans. You know, you could see that in his um, Good Samaritan parable. I have a theory on that one. Of course, we shouldn't even call it the Good Samaritan because that has a connotation that they're all bad Samaritans except for this one. And that's not true. Um, and that was clearly what Jesus's point was. Um was that Samaritans are good. But I think about that story and he's telling the story of the parable of, of the Samaritan helping the uh, Jewish man who has been uh, robbed and beaten, left for dead, ignored by his own people, his own religious institution, his own leaders, his own leadership, one after the other. And then it's this Samaritan man who has mercy on him, takes him, not only does he pay for his, you know, lodging and medical bills, leaves extra money to cover even after he leaves because he has to go. But this is the kind of thing I think that Jesus, when he's telling that story, I always imagine Jesus is a great storyteller. And I would imagine that he, in order to kind of bait the whole crowd listening, which were largely Jews, I'm sure, he, uh, he uh, probably didn't say the uh, ethnicity of the person who was helping you know, so that the uh, audience could identify, yeah, that that's us, you know, we're the poor, or we're the, we're not religious leaders. Yeah, that would be us, we'd be helping that man. And then he kind of waits for it to the end, you know, the punchline or whatever, then he reveals it. And this man was a Samaritan. And then you can just hear kind of this gasp through the crowd. That's how I imagine Jesus telling that story, because that's, that's what Jesus is trying to say is that, that, that we must look at the least of these around us, and realize the goodness in all of us that's there, the potential is there. And um, those of us who are in a position of power or some privilege, like in, in that story, the people who are in privilege and empowered ignore the, the hurting within their own ranks. And it takes somebody who's already oppressed and has already had to fight against it all to have compassion, you know, to see that person as a human being. And he's teaching us a story that we've got to see all the least of these around us, all those who are hurting. And we need to stand up against the systemic opp oppression, uh, racism, and uh, more than stand. And uh, we need to, we need to move for change. And I think that that's, I think the onus, I think the responsibility falls on our shoulders. Um, you know, my own racial background is, is a complex one in some ways. 
Um, I benefit as a, a, a majority culture person. I, I look white, white enough. Um, it's not an issue. I speak the right way. I, I carry myself in a majority culture way. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm, I'm a person who has benefited from that system, though I am a member of the Choctaw Nation. And, you know, I wouldn't, uh, you know, um, my people came over uh, on the Trail of Tears and, uh, and, and into Oklahoma and lived there as subjugated people. Um, but, uh, but fortunately, I guess my racial DNA uh, has allowed and afforded me a great deal of movement, you know, socially um, up the ladder in this culture. And so I would even call myself a white supremacist because I have benefited from a system that has favored majority culture people. So how, how can we get, uh, you know, those of us who find ourselves falling within this majority culture, um, uh, um, this, this privileged position, how can we remove that system? How can we destroy it? Now, these are the questions and I, I don't have, I don't have pat answers. I really don't. But I love that you bring up the Good Samaritan parable. It's one of my favorites. I actually have the Monet painting version of it in my office or Van Gogh. I think it's Van Gogh. Sorry. Um, but what I love about that parable, not only to echo what you said, but MLK talks in one of his sermons about the Jericho road that they are traveling down and that you crimes like that, where men were beaten and abused and, um, their goods were stolen happened all the time. And so he points out at some point in the parable, you have to realize, what are you going to do about that road? What are you going to do about the system that is in place? So what happened to that man does not happen anymore. And that has changed how I've viewed a lot of things as after I read that. Um, and it's exactly what you're talking about. What are the, what of that Jericho road needs to be dismantled? What does it need to be torn up completely? And how do we repave it? How do we fix it? So those systems of oppression no longer happen. Um, and I'm with you. Don't know all the answers, but that's exactly kind of the onus is on us. Yeah, I, I was even, um, who was I talking to? Um, I think somebody reached out to me and said, so what are y'all doing? about all this, you know, when, you know, and I, and I can see that, you know, there's a history here of, of, of standing for uh, civil rights. Um, you know, definitely. Um, I think Bev, our founder at this church had a real vision for kind of uh, dismantling because we're located kind of in the old money of the city, which is white money, which is plantation money. And, uh, and I think Bev originally, that was his idea. You know, he, his family descends a lot from that. And his idea was to dismantle from within, you know, kind of like where this is, let's dismantle, um, dismantle all of this, this money and, uh, and systems that favor this money. And, and I think Bev in his many years, I mean, he's, you know, he pastored here until his death, uh, in 2002, so from 54 to 2002 is a long time. I mean, he spent a lot of time deconstructing um, some parts of the system. Uh, and, and, you know, they're the first, I think, to offer subsidized housing in the city. Um, I mean, the, the, you know, pretty amazing things. They worked uh, a wood ministry that was pretty prolific throughout the area that kept people warm. Um, they did a lot of other things. They tried to do jobs and help, uh, you know, just various organizations, start organizations throughout the city to help. But, um, but until there's a real shift 
in wealth, um, there is not going to be true, I believe, justice. Um, there is a there is a real argument here for reparations, and no one wants to talk about reparations. You know, yeah, it, it seems like even when I mention it to well-meaning um, progressive white folks, um, they'll 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 nod in agreement, but then they'll quickly kind of follow up with a almost under the breath uh, automatic response or caveat footnote or something they want to say every time I use the word reparations or they use the word reparations, they want to qualify it. They want to say, yeah. And when I say reparations and I'll say something like, yeah, we really need to get reparations going um, finally. And I'll say, I agree with you on reparations, but you know, it's have a but in there, but in a very, you know, a thought out way of how to um, make things more equal you know, they, they, there's like this system, like they want to make sure that the wrong people don't get the money. There's, there's, it's always about um, the deep inside of people. Um, they, they always have a fear of, of somebody who's undeserving receiving something they do not deserve. And so they want to qualify their justice. They want to give justice only to those who deserve it. And, uh, and I have to admit, I mean, that's, I think that's pervasive. I think that's very common. I think a lot of people, no matter how liberal they say they are or awoke or whatever they want to say, I think deep inside they have a hard time. Um, they want to, of just giving out this equitability to everyone. Uh, I love what Dr. King said when he talked about, you know, quoting the prophet Isaiah about, you know, a time is coming when the mountain tops or the mountains will be lowered and the valleys will be raised. And um, there's going to be an equal level. You know, I believe in that dream. I really do. But it's going to take uh, majority culture, white folks to literally uh, humble themselves. I mean, humble themselves to the point of, of stepping aside and, and giving people what is due them. And they are deserving because just because of their humans, they're deserving of equitable um, economic investment. They're uh, deserving of, of, of just compensation for work already performed. I mean, it is there, you know, and, uh, and we, we've got to not be afraid to talk about it and figure out ways to do it. Can you go back a little bit? You, you kind of alluded to this, but you really are the you embody an intersectionality of a white male um, privileges from that, but then also a connection with your original tribe. Um, you theologically, right? You you've moved from uh, you know the intersection of <clears throat> uh, being a part of a very fundamentalist Christian faith to a more progressive movement, expansive, um, Christian faith. Um, so can you share a little bit about that journey of what is it like to discover that, to journey that? Um, and even as you say, you pass in a predominantly white culture, but there's aspects of you that many people don't know or see. Um, so share a little bit about that, uh, in your story. Yeah, no, you're right. We could spend maybe many days unpacking the layers 
They're there. Yeah, I appreciate yeah. you bringing that up. Yeah, we use the word intersectionality. Um, and I think that's right. There's a lot of, you know, points or nexuses within us of, of cross sections of things and uh, junctions um, that happen in our lives. And, and you're right. I mean, I, I, growing up in Oklahoma, I think has its own, <laughs> it's its own story. Um, being being white and Indian, uh, as we call it there, at the same time, um, yeah, there's there's definitely something to that that I could get into um, for sure. But being fundamentalist, uh, you're right. Uh, my wife and I were uh, staunch uh, Baptists, and uh, we we didn't enter into a progressive. Um, we didn't even know a progressive version of Christianity even existed. Um, so uh, for many 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 years, and so. Um, I think that, and I was going to say, my wife is, you know, just so, yeah, kind of the layers. Um, we we met when I was we were in college, but but we both lived in Mexico. She's Mexican, Mexican American, from the border uh, in El Paso, Texas, and uh, and uh, and and that's part of. And our children are, of course, mixed with all those things. Uh, my wife and I speak Spanish at home. Yeah, I mean, I learned Spanish very very young. I lived in Mexico uh, when I was 19, so I picked up the language, and um, and so we. And a lot of our relationship has always been in Spanish, and so we speak that language most of the time. Um, and I think that people don't realize that, you know, and and when they meet us or whatever, or meet me separate from her, uh, she's had a lot of different experiences because of her skin tone than I have. You know, I get away with everything; uh, she gets away with nothing. Um, and, and our kids also have varying degrees of, of skin pigmentation, you know, slanting of eyes and things that make them look not Western European. So there's all sorts of interesting layers of, of indigenous, uh, and that's what it is. I mean, that's what Mexicans are. They are tribes just like Choctaw. Um, there are different tribes of people. And, uh, and so when we have these issues at the border, um, you know, where people are trying to come in, many of them are from tribes and still speak their tribal languages, um, you know, seeking refuge. And, uh, and so there's a whole other piece of, uh, of our society um, that gets kind of played out, this kind of racial um, profiling of immigrants that are actually immigrants within the continent, you know, people that are the original peoples here. So... A lot of Indian tribes here, or Native American tribes, have been very sympathetic uh, in North America, in the United States, to uh, to the people who are trying to come across the border, trying to seek refuge and, and from persecuted situations and stuff. Um, yeah, it's all been a, a kind of a, an evolving thing. Um, so, so the complexities of race are, are there. Um, I, I'm sure I've mentioned it to you, I think, before, but my wife and daughter were happened to be in El Paso last summer when the gunman, um, you know, unloaded his weaponry, uh, killing more than 20 people in the Walmart parking lot. Um, we know that Walmart well. My wife and I, our, our college is just behind it. And, uh, and she worked right there at the church on the corner, uh, Emmanuel Baptist. So, um, yeah, we know that we know the neighborhood. And she happened to be back in El Paso, um, tending to her dying mother uh, with with our daughter uh, when when the uh, gunman was there. And my my brown wife, my brown daughter, um, barely missed. They missed the exit. 
They were headed towards the Walmart that morning and uh, to get some cleaning supplies that they needed to uh, help at my mother-in-law's and uh, miss the exit. And it was, they were doing some construction there and it just was weird. And so they ended up in the next exit and just going to Target uh, not far away. And, uh, but, uh, but they're alive, you know, because of that and uh, because they missed the exit that morning. But that kind of rage, you know, that kind of hatred of people in this country, um, you know, is uh, felt in, in, in my family. It's felt uh, very, very clearly. The intersectionalities of, of race is there, of course. Um, majority culture I benefit from. <laughs> and uh, that the, the, my family can't is easily benefit from. And then, uh, and then you've got the coming out of a fundamentalism to, to a little bit more of a progressive uh, bend or understanding of things when it comes to theology, you know, church, how we do church. I mean, all of those have kind of played into the same thing. Um, I was a conservative Republican when I first started uh, into my young years uh, as a young Bible student, and then uh, and now I'm 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 not. Uh, that's not what I am at all. Um, if anything, I for me in my walk, I found myself becoming more like Jesus in my understanding of who Jesus is. But but that seems a little arrogant. <laughs> That's how I feel about it, but it has allowed me to at least have some understanding, right? And uh, and I think that's part of it, some sympathy. You know, we happen to be in a city that is uh, is home to the largest Christian university, the mecca of Christianity, Christian theological training on the fundamentalist side, really. Not overly fundamental. It's interesting, as you know. I mean, there are, 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 I wouldn't have called Liberty the fundamentalist school when I was a fundamentalist. You know, I would have, I wouldn't have put them in that category. I would have put Denver Seminary, for example, or Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, some of these other schools as, as more in line with that kind of uh, rigor of fundamentalism. But Liberty plays the politics of, 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 uh, conservative politics. And so they play it really, really well. And so it's hard not to think of them in that same, in that same vein. And, and rightly so. I mean, they really kind of earned that and then with the moral majority and just everything after that. So, but here we are, here we are at the intersection of what are we going to do? Um, how are we going to do it? And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm in a listening mode right now. That's what I'm in. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I'm out there in solidarity. I'm, I'm writing the letters. I'm, I'm uh, out there in the protest, but I am not. Um, I'm, I'm really trying to listen to the experience of people of color in our country and trying to understand and, and help others get into that room to understand what that's like and why, why change is just absolutely necessary. And so we've had for the past few weeks, some great folks, um, friends of mine have come in and, uh, and shared with our church. Now we're not meeting physically right now. It's all virtual, which has been very helpful. So I've been able to bring in all sorts of people from all over, but, um, you know, just, uh, from this last week, getting to hear from Quan McLaren, who was the uh, director of, uh, diversity retention at Liberty as a person, a queer person of color getting to share his story and, uh, and he's leading a, a movement, you know, for, for especially faculty and staff of color at Liberty who feel like there's a racial 
uh, trauma. They're being racially traumatized. Um, he's he's got he's leading an effort, an economic effort, to raise money to allow people that are stuck there because of money to be able to have the means to leave. Now, I mean, that's that's thinking. You know, that's putting and asking us as majority culture people, as Christians. And he, boy, he made a great a great plea. He said, you know, where, where are the where are the white Christians when it comes to trying to help? people out of situations that are definitely toxic and unhealthy and ungodly, you know, and uh, that, that are created by a Christian system. And boy, that boy, it really boggled my mind as he was laying out the challenge. So, so he's raising money and, uh, and that's, that's the challenge to us, I think, as the, as, as Christian people to, uh, to respond, you know. Wow. What have been some, spiritual practices or rhythms or personal self-care practices that are currently sustaining you or maybe in the past have sustained you through some of these, this journey of all that we're talking about. Uh, if you, you probably have gotten this hint from just getting to know me, it doesn't need much. I'm a very undisciplined person. <laughs> I really am. You know, <laughs> I'm the guy who who will go to the kitchen and will uh, will find his comfort food. Um, you know, we'll sit in front of the television for hours, um, digesting just craziness uh, in order to distract myself from whatever it is I'm avoiding. So, so there's nothing there's nothing <laughs> overly spiritual <laughs> about me in general. Now, fortunately, God is so good to me, um, good to all of us. But I. When I found this community, Church of the Covenant, Church of the Covenant is unique. Um, it's, it's small. It's uh, it's justice minded. You know, it's um, they've got and they've got the, the 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 credibility of that. I mean, they're but they're also very um, they're, they're a um, a very well they call it a contemplative community. They're very monastic too. I mean, they believe a lot in silence. Now it was before they even used words like contemplative. Yeah. Or contemplative prayer, they, they, those words weren't even really re-emerging yet, um, as they would eventually in the decades after this church was started. Uh, I mean, you had you had Merton, and and I mean, there's all sorts of folks who started pulling these old beautiful practices together. Of course, Keating, Thomas Keating, was the kind of the powerhouse for this church as they shifted uh, into contemplative prayer as a practice, and. Um, but before that, they were heavily influenced by Quakers, and so they called it silence. And so they would have moments and large, you know, times uh, set apart for silence. You know, silent prayer they would call it, and um, and that silence and and that would be a discipline of theirs. And so this church started that way. Um, they've always been a very contemplative. Now they they're very modest. I mean, um, humble. They don't call themselves contemplative. If you ask them, they would say we're we're striving to be contemplative because they don't feel you can just categorize an entire people as contemplative or even a person as contemplative because contemplation is a moment. Um, you know, you're, you're striving to be contemplative and, and mindful and, and, and all things you do. But, uh, and so this church, uh, has, has, has adopted, and I would say has mastered, um, a few of these ancient disciplines of contemplative or centering prayer. And they use that as their, I mean, their anchor for most everything. They, they value it. 
They also believe a great deal in mindfulness. Uh, they follow the teachings of Thich Nhat Hanh and, uh, and believe in, in uh, deep meditative mindfulness about everything. And so they're, this community has taught me all these things. When I came here, I'm, like I said, I'm unruly. I'm, I'm boisterous. I'm not, you know, soft-spoken like their previous leaders. I'm, I'm loud. Um, I'm, I'm like a bull in a china cabinet. I say the wrong things, um, and and I hate silence. And um, I mean, I, I, meditations never worked. I couldn't do yoga. I mean, all the things I think about that I'm just not. And then. I come here and then I, I just felt like God was, was kind of smiling at me and saying, it's time, it's time to discipline yourself. And, and, uh, and I'm going to teach you how to do it. And I'm going to use this community to do that. And so how do you lead a contemplative community when you yourself are contemplative <laughs> has been a, an act of faith on the part of this community. Um, I just immersed myself in all the literature that they have espoused and study regularly. And, and I've learned from them. So I've sat at the feet of this community for three years, learning to be contemplative, learning what centering prayer is about, learning what meditation can be and, and how to be there, how to get there, um, how to be mindful, how to do things mindfully. I mean, these folks have taught me these things. So I, I have found my way after all these years. I'm 45, so this has been a journey of many, many years in the making. But um, I think I have arrived, you know, um, of, of learning. I couldn't call myself contemplative, but I, it has helped me in these times. And that's what I was guess I was going to say. It brings me back. Mm. Um, uh, contemplative prayer is has been the uh, it's daily. Um, um, I think you do Lexia Divina too. And so, so do they here. And, uh, so a lot of just kind of meditative, um, uh, reviewing of sacred, sacred word, sacred scripture, um, has been very, very powerful. So that's, yeah, that's kind of aligned myself into this, uh, mystical, mystic Christian mysticism, um, with contemplative pieces to it. Isn't it a freeing thing? I guess that's one of the things I discovered, just very, yeah, it is really, uh, extremely very, freeing. Yeah. It's a freeing mystical thing. that's almost hard to describe, but the benefits of it are really cool. Well, and I was afraid of, like I was taught mm. that if you were quiet too long, you know, that it was inviting, you know, demons into your, into your body, into your life and your heart. You had to fill it quickly with noise and, uh, yeah, no. Wow. You're right. Silence is freedom. If people want to connect with your church or you on social media and support what you guys are doing, how, what are some links or ways people can do that? Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for uh, offering to advertise for us a little bit. We do love interacting with people with little to no expectation. <laughs> We are not here to evangelize anyone, but we love to journey with people and to support them in their journeys. Um, and please uh, look us up. We're on the internet. Um, our website is chcov.org. And, uh, and you can find us under the same anywhere. Uh, look up Church of the Covenant on Facebook or chcov.org and, uh, and find us. Um, I think we're on all social media for the most part, except TikTok. You need to get a TikTok account going. You can work on that for the next time I have you on the show. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dan, thanks so much for being a part of this. 
I really appreciate your work and your ministry and uh, how even if you're disorganized, you are a very intentional human. Um, and I've appreciated that learning from you and um, how much you take history and um, respond to it in your life. And I think that is a, a lesson many of us, especially in the white community, right, as we see these ongoing protests of things that have been happening for centuries for our history, um, you respond to that history rather than trying to ignore it and rather than trying to think it doesn't exist like many of us in dominant culture do. So I, I appreciate that about you. So I'm thankful for your time. Thank you, Nathan. Friends, thank you so much for listening to the Why Behind the What. I know there are billions of people who seem to have podcasts now. So I really do appreciate you listening to this one. If you can and you enjoy this podcast, would you do me the honor and rate and review this podcast on iTunes? It's really simple, takes only a minute, but it messes with Apple's algorithm. So they recommend it to other users and more people can find it easily. If you need help, I even have a link to how to rate a podcast tutorial video linked in the show notes, and it'll show you how to do it. Your few sentences, clicking a number of stars, it really is a huge encouragement to me. So I thank you for doing that. And friends, as you continue to work for an equitable world where the contemplative leads you to humble yourself, may you have peace, may you have calm, and may you have happiness. Thank you.